Flips.com. If you plan to call in and speak with one of our hosts, please turn down your radio and separate yourself from any background noise and wait for the area code to be called on before you speak. And don't forget, RevolutionRadioFreedomSlips.com is listener supported. So stop by the homepage, FreedomSlips.com. Visit the site support area to help support the host you're listening to's airtime. Thank you. Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, where the truth never sleeps. Johnson. Some consider my efforts to be an underground law school. 
I am not an attorney, and I do not give legal advice. I teach. That's lawful and legal. Consider yourself served. You are to appear Wednesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, Studio A. My forte? Foreclosure and contract law. Grab your legal pad and pen. Learn a broad spectrum of law spanning administrative, criminal, family, tort, and federal law. Fools and losers cling to old cases. I dissect and comment on the latest rulings that control the courts. Don't be a loser. And if you don't appear, you will be held in contempt. Society on upon which this country has fallen, a storm breaks upon the horizon. It's been said that those that have the eyes to see and the ears to hear will play a paramount role in the furthering of humanity and civilized society. But can civilized society and humanity survive the coming conflicts? Not seen since a dawn of time in ages bypassed. But you can find true forms of information and knowledge in abundance at revolution.radio, freedomsluts.com, the number one listener-supported radio station on the globe. Stand upon the right side of history. Opinions expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and FreedomSlips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, 100% listener-supported radio, and now we return you to your host. Oh, okay, we seem to be there now, that's good. I'm assuming that I'm on live. Uh, if anybody's listening in the chat room, just let me know. Let me just ask them. 
Uh, just get the confirmation that I'm on. I think I'm on. So, and then we can continue. So this is uh, Revolution Radio. The show's called Free Association. It's the round table version. Although I don't think anybody's going to be around today. Uh, I know Lawrence is working again. I haven't spoken to I haven't spoken to, to Joel in about a couple of weeks, so I don't know whether he's around. I shall uh, I shall make an attempt to contact you and then see if we can get a show together. If not, I'll play some some uh, videos or something. We'll work it out as we go along. All right, so it's the new year. I'm being quite casual about it, but it is the new year. And uh, it's it's going to be a good one, I think. It feels good to me so far. Um, yeah, one of the, some of the clips that I was looking at uh, last night it was a, there's a there's a clip of of a doctor talking to uh, the health minister in the UK that was on Sky News and was used quite extensively in other places as well, uh, challenging, challenging, basically challenging the health minister about uh, mandated vaccines in the health service. And uh, it's been used a lot. It's been on TV quite a lot. And then there's also this Novak Djokovic story which is happening, which is a challenge to the Australian government based on natural immunity. So the doctor was using natural immunity as his evidence, as his argument. Um, Novak Djokovic is challenging on the basis of natural immunity from an infection that he had in December. So natural immunity is on the agenda again, which means that we're making progress. So whether this is controlled opposition or not, I don't really care, quite honestly as long as the narrative changes and things move. When things are shifting, I'm quite happy to add my weight to it. Um, using, using that footage is an editorial decision at Sky News. So somebody has maybe used, used the fact that Novak Djokovic has a court case going on based on natural immunity. That's cover, to, to put another story out there. So maybe somebody in the newsrooms, somebody in the editorial staff, has got his head screwed on right. And they're using, they're using the big stories to cover smaller stories, to get cover for bringing people on or using clips, or, or whatever that they might not have got away with six months ago. So I think the news people are very, very aware of what's going on, and they're doing their best, quite honestly. If I don't know whether I would be able to work in a newsroom under these circumstances, but if I was, then I would certainly be trying to get the word out, and I think a lot of people are probably do, trying to do that, but you have to you have to 
cover your back at all times in newsrooms and in big media organisations. You you can't go out on a limb, otherwise you'll get you'll get crucified. And uh, being a martyr is not necessarily a good idea, long term or short term. It might have a benefit, but long term you you're losing somebody from the editorial staff or wherever it is that maybe had a clue and those are the people we need to be there so rather than calling people controlled opposition or limited hangouts or whatever look at what people are actually doing it's a tricky decision making making a decision to to not have a vaccine if you're a surgeon or if you're a doctor that's been a doctor for 15, 20 years or whatever, has a mortgage with a couple of kids. That's a very, very hard decision. And we need to give people credit for these things. Because the, the alternative is to go along with it, to pay the mortgage, to keep your family together. Because if you don't have a roof over your head, if you've got problems paying the bills or whatever, because you've made a stand, potentially your marriage is going to be rocky. There's going to be a lot of tension in there. Potentially, you might end up being divorced and losing your kids. If you if you take that story all the way down the line, then it becomes a very, very tricky decision. And there's no way to know whether that's going to happen or not. But But that's the story that people play in their heads. And if you're playing that story in your head and you still make the decision to stand up, then that's courage. And there are, there are some doctors that are doing that in the UK. There are, there are some that are wavering, but there are some that are still, that are still doing it. And, and the government can't sack 70,000 people. In all, in all seriousness, in, in fairness, the, the government in April, when, when the mandates come in, is going to have to sack probably 10% of the workforce of the National Health Service. And there's no way to do that without disruption. There's no way to do it without it having an impact on people's health. So they, the government's going to have to think seriously about what, what they've got themselves into. So if if a, a challenge by a doctor in the health service gives Sajid Javid a way out and he uses it, then that's good for everybody. Again, the decisions the, the, the decisions are tough on both sides at this particular moment in time. So we have to give people, we have to have a little bit of compassion for people and let people work through whatever their internal processes are and give people credit for doing that because it's not easy. It's not easy to be be verbal about things, to stand up about things. even just challenging challenging masks just becomes a drain in the end. 
because people will challenge back and it just becomes a never ending conversation and I don't really want to have that conversation for the rest of my life I'd rather other people were having the internal conversation but at the moment then they don't appear to be anyway I don't normally talk about quite so much um, current events on this show but I might I might just play some some clips of what I was watching last night and uh, see where we go from there. I'm going to see if Joel's around, first of all. So far, there's no response. So I'm guessing he's probably got a client or he's busy doing other things, which is fair enough. He did say he would be here when he, when he could be here. He didn't, didn't guarantee he was going to be here. So I'm just going to play some clips, I think. Let me share my screen. Of YouTube, so we'll start with Novak Djokovic because that's been going on for five days now. And the, most of the news coverage seems to be from last night, but uh, there's, there's bits and pieces. So he seems he is practicing. Let's have a look at this because it's uh, I'm seeing this clip before. Looks like he's practicing. I don't want to let the music play because I'll end up with a copyright strike if I let music play too long. There you go. He's a little bit of uh, Nigel Farage from a couple of days ago now. So Novak Djokovic, the world's number one tennis player, goes to Australia to defend his Australian Open title. And it's all very straightforward and very clear. Australian tennis says, yes, you can come in. And if you look at Victoria state law, and here it is, makes it perfectly clear that one of the exemptions from having to quarantine when you get into Australia is having had COVID within the last six months and, of course, testing negatively. Back in December, Djokovic had 
COVID-19 and he's got the PCR results to prove it. So he flew to Australia believing there wasn't a problem at all. Now, perhaps it's not surprising that some Australians, given his high profile, weren't very happy about this because they'd been one of the most locked down countries in the world. Not, of course, that that's made any difference to the outbreaks that come wave after wave. But it's then that big government, big, bullying, nasty government intervenes and the federal government goes over the top of Victoria State. And Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, says there must be no exemptions for anyone. We'll just read what Victoria State law says. If you're flying into Melbourne, it's perfectly clear. And I'm pretty sure that if he hadn't been the number one tennis player in the world, there just wouldn't have been a problem. The most astonishing thing with all of this is how few people are prepared to speak out. How the broadcasters are making out that somehow Djokovic is a threat to public health. Well, he absolutely isn't. As we know, doesn't matter whether you've had one, two, three, or in Israel, four injections of this, of this vaccine. You can still catch it. You can still spread it. So provided you tested negative, met the rules, I cannot see what the problem is. Now, I do know the Djokovic family, and I have spoken to them this morning at some length. And here's what happened. He was actually arrested. I mean, be in no doubt about that. He was arrested. His wallet has been taken. His mobile phone has been taken. He's been put into a rundown hotel, uh, which is more akin to a prison, although I think the food is probably somewhat worse, which for a very fit athlete must be a very unhappy state of affairs. And worst of all, the Australian Home Affairs Minister, Karen Andrews, gives a press statement and says he's free to leave when he likes. Well, that is not the true situation. Absolutely not. Because if he was just to leave, he'd be banned from going back to Australia for the next three years, which would put him at the age of 37, which for winning Grand Slams is difficult. And that's why he has to go through this appeal process. He has to go through this ruling uh, that will take place on Monday. I can't prejudge what will happen, but it seems to me that Australia has lost any sense of liberty, any sense, frankly, of common sense. And I expect that he's going to be deported. But I will be talking to the family. I will keep you up to date. Oh, and by the way, fans that have been turning up um, outside the tennis tournament have been holding up Djokovic scarves and told they must hide them from public view. What has happened to Australia? And what has happened here to us? Why are the majority prepared to allow big government in the name of fighting this virus to take away our liberties and freedoms? Do you know, if they can treat the world's number one tennis player like this, just think one day what they might do to you. Thank you for watching this video. Now, to make sure you don't miss any future videos, yeah, all right, thank you, Nigel. That's from a couple of days ago. I know he's been in he's been been in Croatia with the family uh, for a couple of days doing interviews and what have you. Is um, another piece. It's a bit longer. Uh, this should okay. This is from uh, last night, by the looks of it. Let's do an update as to all the news that is going on 
with Novak Djokovic in Melbourne, Australia, and his detention, his court case, his release, and what appears to be, once again, his new detention, his new arrest. This thing has completely just gone absolutely crazy. What a misfire from Morrison and uh, the Australian government. They have completely lost the plot here. This is a big, big L for Morrison and for the government of Australia. And regardless as to what happens with Djokovic, if he's allowed to stay, if he's allowed to play, or if they actually take the nuclear option and the ministers of, uh, of the government actually throw him out of the country, whatever happens, Djokovic has won. He is the big winner in all of this. Um, he is now uh, a world hero. He is a world hero. And it didn't have to go this way. It didn't have to go this way. The, the Australian government and Morrison could have just let this go. They could have not brought up the jabs before the, uh, the Australian Open. They just could have let the players come in, play tennis, make it about sports, don't politicize it, and just let the whole thing run smoothly without having to, to bring in the whole coof narrative into all of this. But nope, they decided to go the other way. And they decided to make an example of Djokovic. They decided to punish Djokovic. They decided to try and make him submit to their authoritarian rule. And uh, he refused. He refused to submit. And now he is a world hero. Whether he's allowed to play or not, whatever happens now, he has, uh, he has won. And... Morrison and the Australian government has lost. But let's take it from the top because there's a lot going on here. And I'm going to probably have to do another update on this because uh, we still don't know the exact final outcome as to whether he's going to be allowed to stay in the country or whether they are going to uh, deport him. But uh, we started the uh, the day. We started the, the end of the weekend with the news that Djokovic was briefly released from detention. So he was allowed to leave his uh, quarantine hotel as his cases were, uh, as the case was moving forward, guy, you could see a photo of this uh, hotel here in uh, in Melbourne. The Park Hotel in Melbourne has a graffiti "Free Them All." The place just just looks like it's uh, it's more of a detention center than a hotel. Anyway, uh, the breaking news as Monday rolled around was that Djokovic's deportation order was overturned by the court, meaning he can remain in Australia and contest his Australian Open Championship. Nine times he's won that tournament. He's won 20 Grand Slams, one more, and he is, without a doubt, the greatest player of all time. He is the GOAT. He is already the greatest player of all time. He's going to go down in tennis and sports history for this. This is the stuff of movies, everybody. This is the stuff of movies. So it doesn't matter where he wins his 21st Grand Slam, whether it's in Australia, which would be the smart thing, for uh, the Australian government to do is to let him play in the open and to defend his championship. But we'll get into that. Or whether he goes to Roland Garros, which is coming up, I believe, in May, or Wimbledon, which is coming up in end of June, if I'm not mistaken. If he goes to one of those tournaments, French Open or Wimbledon, and wins there, what a story that would be winning his 21st Grand Slam in the backyard of Macron or going to Wimbledon, the greatest tennis tournament in the world, and breaking it there. That would that would be just an amazing story. But anyway, the breaking news was he won his court case. It's over. He won his court case, right? 
the court saw everything. They saw the evidence. They said, you know what? Djokovic presented all the uh, applications as was required of him. He dotted his I's. He crossed his T's. Uh, from what I understand, there were procedural, procedural errors on behalf of border control, on behalf of the government, and that the Djokovic lawyers, the Djokovic legal team showed without a shadow of a doubt that he took all the necessary steps to enter the country and play in the tournament, period. Case closed, right? Okay, well, Kevin Rudd tweeted after the uh, the verdict was announced that Morrison just lost his case against Djokovic. Total incompetence, like on everything else. If they seriously didn't want him, why on earth did they give him a visa to fly here? This was conceived as one giant distraction strategy when out in the real world, people can't get tested. This was, without a doubt, a political move. I said it in the last video I did. I said this was completely political on Morrison's part. This was all planned out. Djokovic did the right thing. He did all the necessary paperwork that was asked of him. He showed all the uh, the medical tests. And he got his visa from an embassy, from an Australian embassy abroad. They must have issued his visa, right? They gave it to him. They saw his paperwork. They gave it to him. And he got on a plane and he flew to Australia. Period. End of story. But Morrison, he decided before Djokovic even landed in Melbourne that he was going to kick him out. They made a political calculation and they said, you know what? Here's something that we can do in order to pump up your poll numbers, in order to win you favor with the uh, with the coof obsessed. Right. The people that are just absolutely absorbed by the whole thing and and all the lockdowns and all the jabs. Here's something we can do to help you win favor with them. Kick out the number one greatest tennis player of all time when he lands in uh, Australia. And that's exactly what the Morrison team did. They saw this as uh, as a political win. They they think this is going to get them vote, votes. They think this is going to help them win the uh, the next election cycle. And so they planned this out before Djokovic even landed in Melbourne. And we have the timeline of statements from the Morrison team that shows that all the statements were prepared in the uh, in the plan, in the event that when Djokovic lands, they're going to kick him out and Morrison's going to look like a tough guy and, and he's going to look like he's the, the man of the people. Remember, rules are rules and no one's above the law. And that was the... That was the narrative that they were going to paint Morrison uh, as far as him taking on the greatest tennis player of all time, Djokovic, right? That was the political calculation. Boy, did they mess up. Boy, did they mess up. Abby Yamani says, wow, federal court judge in Novak Djokovic's visa appeal just frustratingly asked, what could Mr. Djokovic possibly have done more? Novak Djokovic just won. Exactly. So, look, from a legal standpoint... This is there's there's no dispute. Djokovic did what was required of him to get the visa and to enter the country, period. Case closed. Novak Djokovic is a king, not just for his tennis, instead for his ability to expose and embarrass our state and federal government to the whole world. He'll win the Australian Open as God's reward for not backing down. That was from Abi Yamani, of course. These tweets from Abi Yamani are before we get the latest news on what's happened, the twist, the plot twist to all of this. But just uh, just stick with me. We're, we're going to get to it. The Spectator, breaking news. 
Djokovic's deportation order overturned by court, meaning he can remain in Australia and contest the Australian Open. Nigel Farage was in Belgrade with Djokovic's family, waiting for the result of the visa hearing. Farage uh, tweeted to watch this space. So Farage is firmly in support of uh, of Djokovic, and he's with the family. He uh, he actually became friends with the Djokovic family, he said, um, when they would go to Wimbledon. And he says they're great people, and he's there to support them. So when the news came out that they won the court hearing, Farage tweeted a huge win for Joker Nole, Djokovic, this morning. If the Australian government fight this, they will look dreadful. Well, Nigel Farage, if you only knew, if the Australian government fight this way, they will look dreadful. Well, just wait. Um, this tweet here says, I'm an Australian. Today is the first day in my life that I've actually been happy to see my country lose. Hashtag Novak Djokovic. There are a lot of Australians that wanted to kick Djokovic out, but there are also a lot of Australians that are taking the correct position, the rational and reasonable position, which is don't bring politics into, into sports. Just let the Australian Open play without having to bring the damn coof into everything. Just let the best tennis players duke it out, play the tournament, move on, show everybody that Australia is back in business, that Australia is open to the world, that Australia is is moving to a, a back-to-normal position. And just don't bring this damn coof and politics into all of it. Just for God's sakes, have a good time. Enjoy the sport. But nope, Morrison just couldn't let it go. He couldn't let it go. And there are a lot of people in Australia, while they're calling for Djokovic to to get deported, which is a dumb, dumb position, there are a lot of people who are saying, just let's play the Australian Open. If they don't cancel Djokovic's visa, then Morrison will probably lose the next election. Australian people are fierce about double standards. There is the part of the Australian society, like I said, which is all about these double standards. You know, I can't believe that Djokovic can come into the country while I can't leave the country. I can't drive from from one area to the other. But that's not the case. The court has ruled that he had all his paperwork in order. So it's finished. The court ruled he had all his paperwork in order. So he did nothing wrong. Djokovic did nothing wrong. He followed the rules according to an Australian court. But the main part about this tweet is, if they don't cancel Djokovic's visa, then Morrison will probably lose the next election. You see, Morrison has taken the position where in order to to get those poll numbers up, in order to win the election, in order to to get votes, his position is, I'm going to be tough on people like Djokovic or anyone that wants to come into the country. I'm going to be tough on the coof. I'm going to be a tough leader. That, that's his political calculus. And he says, I'm going to make an example of Djokovic to just show how tough I am and to show that I won't put up with double standards. According to Morrison, that's the framework. That's the narrative. He's going to be the prime minister that doesn't put up with double standards. Rules are rules, everybody, right? Rules are rules. If there's any um, Australian uh, politicians that are looking to create campaign commercials against Morrison – Use that rules or rules soundbite from his uh, speech as Djokovic entered Australia. Take that rules or rules, cut it out, and use it in your next uh, campaign commercial because you'll be able to have a field day with Morrison's miscalculation here. Because remember, Morrison is someone who has actually broken the rules in the past, but 
you know, he, he knows that people have forgotten about that, and he's going to just distract them with Djokovic. So with 2021 rapidly drawing to a close, it seems probable that the next federal election will happen in the first half of 2022. The timing for federal elections is determined by a combination of the Commonwealth Electoral Act of 1918 and the Australian Constitution. The exact technicalities are discussed in detail in a parliamentary library publication. However, the abbreviated version is that if the government intends to hold a normal House of Representatives and half Senate federal election, election day must be no later than 21 May 2022. Exactly. As I said in my past videos, as I'll say it again, this was a political move because it appears that elections are coming and Morrison is going to position himself as the tough leader who takes a stand against inequality, who will enforce the rules of the coup, of the coup overlords. He's going to enforce those rules and no one is above those rules. Right. Everyone is going to abide by the coup and the jab loss. That's going to be Morrison's position. Anyway, there's a there was a little bit. of. All right. So that's from last night. I'm still not 100 percent clear whether Novak Djokovic has been rearrested or not. Um, there was some was some talk yesterday of him being rearrested, but. There's nothing on the main news channels about that. That was that was kind of a, a rumor that uh, that the family the family put out, but it, there's been nothing to confirm it. So I don't know whether he's been rearrested or not. Uh, but it doesn't make much sense to rearrest him unless you know you're going to deport him. Uh, that that clip I just played was in, was from Alex Christodofu's channel on YouTube. So let's see if we've got any anything else. Is a right changing topic slightly. We've got uh, Mike Eden on uh, GB News. This is from a couple of days ago, from Saturday, I think. back. After two years of COVID, more and more questions are being asked about the virus and also the way it has been tackled. Many experts from the worlds of science, medicine and also the law have voiced concerns, not just about the vaccines, but about the way our societies have been turned upside down. So all-encompassing has been the strategy applied by one government after another the freedoms and rights compromised or taken away entirely, it feels like every aspect of life has been affected. My next guest is Dr Mike Eden. He has a background in biochemistry and toxicology. For 17 years, he was Chief Scientific Officer for Pfizer UK, specialising in allergies and respiratory conditions. From the start of the outbreak of COVID, Dr Eden has been an outspoken and often controversial critic of the official handling of the pandemic. He joins me now to explain his fears. Hello, Mike. How lovely to see you there. Hello, Neil. Uh, good evening. Thank you very much for inviting me on your show. No, no, it's a it's it's a pleasure to to you know to to get the opportunity to hear your voice uh, in real time. Uh, could you could you first of all, Mike, tell the viewers, tell us your background 
you know, the context in which you sit. Yes, certainly. Yes, I would say um, I'm, I'm a professional biologist. So as you say, I have a degree in biochemistry and toxicology. Um, I don't usually brag, but I was top of year. Um, I then did a research-based PhD in respiratory pharmacology. Then I studied, then I worked for seven years at the Wellcome Research Labs, and then 17 years at Pfizer's Sandwich Labs UK. And as you said, I was, um, I was head of worldwide research for allergy and respiratory. I left 10 years ago on very good terms. I, I had a lovely time at Pfizer. They were a very good employer. Um, and then over the last 10 years, I've been a consultant to 30 biotech companies. Some are public companies now. And I also had the opportunity to start and lead as CEO my own biotech, where I managed to raise some capital, venture capital, and negotiate with Pfizer to acquire some unwanted compounds from my portfolio, uh, former portfolio at Pfizer. And then with some colleagues, uh, we ran clinical trials, were successful, and that company was acquired by Novartis in 2017. So to those who've criticized me and said I'm an embittered ex-employee, one, I, I really like working at Pfizer. And two, they really like working with me. And it was a, an, only as recently as five years ago that uh, a transaction was done. They were, they were a co-owner and co-investor in my biotech. So I think we would say we had a, a very cordial relationship and left on mutually good terms. And uh, I was fortunate to make a few, panic, few pennies. So I'm not speaking out to make money. And I'm definitely not speaking out to make fame. I'm actually probably quite a shy person and this is intensely difficult for me but I'm I'm speaking out because I don't think what we are being told at all represents the sort of real sort of threat to our health and um, we, we could we could talk about a few of those points but yes I have been a, a persistent and I think well qualified critic of government policy. At, at what point Mike and, and for what reason or reasons did alarm bells start to ring for you? Yeah um, early on in 2020, uh, I was in Nice with my wife when, the, when we heard tell of this virus coming, and I was really quite frightened. The, um, the annual Nice carnival closed a day early. It's only about 30 miles, I think, from the northern Italian border, and we were very conscious that the virus could be in the crowd. Um, I looked at the statistics, and it looked like at that age, 60, I might have a 1% chance of dying. I didn't fancy that, so I was quite worried. We went home, and uh, as we came up towards the first lockdown, my my concern moved to consternation because I heard government advisors saying things that I, I just didn't understand why they were saying them because I knew they weren't true. Um, I could give a couple of examples about saying, well, we're not sure once if you've survived this virus whether you'll be immune. And I thought, well, Immunology 101 will tell you that um, you should expect to be immune for a substantial period of time, possibly for life. And so at that point, I started listening and thinking, why are you saying these things? I also went to check uh, what data there was in the public domain, like the Diamond Princess. There was an outbreak, big outbreak on a cruise ship, mostly occupied by people of my age and older which are the prime groups get ill and die. And yet it looked like the lethality was at least 10 times less than they were telling us from Wuhan. And so I thought by the end of it, I thought this, this, the actual threat in the environment is not much worse than a severe influenza. It's not influenza, different virus, but that's the measure of the threat. And yet suddenly we started doing astonishing things like lockdowns. Seriously, it's, um, 
Uh, yeah, so that's what, around March. Um, and my wife reminds me that after the first three weeks to flatten the curve, when it was extended, she reminds me often that I was tearing up and down the stairs saying, we are in so much trouble. I knew at that point, so seriously, I knew at that point something very bad was happening. And I'm afraid the impression that something bad has happened, uh, as a professional scientist, it's been absolutely obvious to me by May 2020 that um, I'm afraid it's, it's nothing like you've been told. And it's, I don't want to get you or your station into difficulty, Neil, but um, I'm, I'm very happy to exemplify if you want. So what I mean by the things that we've been told to do are not, not appropriate. So uh, you guide me. I don't, I don't want to run uh, the yeah. ship of GB News on the ground. You're, you allege that we've been lied to. Yeah. I think that it's fair to, to, to summarise. Yes. You, you, you say yes, we've been lied to. That, that yeah. some of the, the information that was being given by government and their advisors was deliberately misleading. Now, all of it. All what of it. data, what information is it that you have seen yeah. and in what way have yeah. you been able to interpret that information, that data that, that, that you feel yeah. entitled to, to make the allegation that you've made? Yes, certainly. So many things are harder than others. But one thing I will say to, to your listeners, uh, I've given many interviews. So uh, you can decide whether I'm telling the truth or not. You can go and check whether what I say is true or not. So the long-form interview I gave to an American journalist called Dale, Dale Big, Big Tree. Sorry about my speech. Uh, the High Wire. The program's called The High Wire. So if you search that, it's about an hour-long interview. So I did go through all of the things that I would answer to your question. We don't have time today. But essentially, I'm going to give you one example. We've been told, have we not, uh, to act like we've got it, that essentially people without symptoms can infect other people. It's called asymptomatic transmission. And it underscores pretty much every one of the measures, uh, regular testing of people who aren't, haven't got symptoms, uh, wearing masks, even though you have no symptoms, uh, social distancing, business closures, school closures, border controls, all of those hang on this idea that you'd be a walking virus bomb. Um, it's not true. It's simply not true. And I can explain why it's not true. And then I can refer you to published information that shows it's not true. So first, in order to be a good source of infection, you have to have lots of air, virus in your airway, your upper airway and your nose. So you, then you can breathe it on other people. But if you have lots of virus in your airway, you will have symptoms. It's not possible for you to grow a culture of virus affecting, burning through the lining of your airways and not give you symptoms. Equally, when you have these infections, your immune system fights back, raises your temperature, gives you uh, symptoms. So you can't have high levels of virus and no symptoms, but you can't be infectious, highly infectious without lots of virus. So I'm afraid in asymptomatic transmission is not true. That's the theoretical approach. However, it's also been studied practically. And again, I can put it in the notes afterwards. Probably the biggest paper studied hundreds of people who were PCR positive with symptoms and PCR positive without symptoms. The latter are so-called asymptomatic cases. They then studied the frequency with which people infected family members. And the people with symptoms infected a family member about one in five, one in six times. People without symptoms it was way under 1%. And that was using PCR tests that have got some kind of low level of background false positives. I believe that data shows that people without symptoms are not able to infect other people. Then I'm going to say two other things. 
Dr. Anthony Fauci is on tape, recorded last year, saying, in all the history of respiratory viral epidemics, the driver of it has always been a symptomatic person. He says exactly those words on camera. And then Dr. Maria Kokovi of the WHO said exactly the same. In our studies, she said, we've looked for the frequency with which so-called asymptomatic cases infect other people. We are not finding any. So there you go. That's the theory, the published literature, and the statements from very senior figures in the US and WHO advisory. So why is it our government, France's, Italy's, Germany's, are all saying something different? Well, sorry, it's, part, it's clearly part of a plan. Why do I say that? Until 2020, and I went and read them, and your, your listeners can go and read them, each company, country had a pandemic preparedness plan for events like this. And the only two things those plans contained were, if you are ill, stay home until you're better, and wash your hands more often, because we don't know initially what the transmission route is. The rest of the document spends 10 pages telling you why it's not justified to mass test the population, to close the borders, to restrict business activities or close schools. So all the things that we're actually doing, I think every one of those is, is a lie, is inappropriate, and they're all being pushed by all the governments at the same time. And what I think why they're doing that is to frighten us, why they're doing that is to induce us to get vaccinated, and why they're doing that, I'm afraid, is I think vaccination passports are digital ID. And that's what I think this is about. So that's, uh, long story short. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a country. All right. So, so that's, uh, Mike Eden on GB News from Saturday, I think it was. And, uh, yeah, he got challenged as well. Later on in the interview, there was a challenge to what he'd been saying about asymptomatic spread. Uh, but uh, that's the key points of it. Um, so there is, there is, GB News is quite good at, at putting both sides of the story. They're, they're treading a, a fine line, but they're, but they're doing their best. Uh, and that gives Sky News a little bit of cover. It gives other people a little bit of cover as well. So the, the conversation's opening up a little bit over here. And as I said earlier on, the, the conversation about natural immunity is, is on the mainstream media now, which is, a, again, a step in the right direction. It should never have been off the mainstream media, quite honestly. It's part of the discussion. It should never have been left out. But uh, if you've got an agenda to sell vaccines and bring in digital ID, then natural immunity is inconvenient. So the there's fairly obvious reasons why they would leave that out. Uh, so Rev Radio's listener supported. Uh, we rely on listener contributions, donations to, to keep the station running. So if you if you like what you hear, uh, then uh, you can find us at freedomslips.com and there's a tab on the navigation bar that will take you to the place to make donations. Uh, my name's Dennis. This is Free Association. It's the roundtable version. And uh, until I get a group together for the New Year's, I'll be I'll be playing clips. Uh, but we'll see who's available. Lawrence isn't available, so I need to find a couple of new people. 
so if you if you do want to participate in a round table, I know it's four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning or whatever now. But if you are around if you're in Europe particularly or Australia or New Zealand or Asia, then we can get a round table together from those people. And uh, anybody in the States who's awake who wants to jump on can can jump on and join in. But uh you'll find me on Skype. Uh, Open Philosopher Free Association is my name on Skype if you want to join in and I'll see you in three or four minutes. This is Thomas, a.k.a. a mad painter. I'd like you to join me Monday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Open Canvas. Don't forget to bring an open mind. Yes, folks, that's right. Bring an open mind to an open canvas. Again, that is Monday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern. You oppose government corruption. This is Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here. law. Do you enjoy interviews with amazing guests? Then join Crip Rick every Monday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Revolution Radio. Studio A, freedomslips.com. Crip Rick's iPhone thinking. Welcome to the Crypt. <laughs> Enter into a world unseen on Raven Star's Witching Hour. You will encounter eclectic topics from the realm of spirit brought into our matrix of truth. With your host, the Solaris Blue Raven. Solaris will bring you an array of unique guests covering topics from ghostly spirits to amazing anomalies, covert technology, UFOs, and shadowy global events. That's right here at RevolutionRadioFreedomSense.com, Saturdays, midnight till 2 a.m. Eastern Time. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. Let the magic rise. <laughs> Galactic Interstellar Council on Revolution Radio Studio A, Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern. Join us as we traverse the Starseed Paradigm. As expressed in the time-space continuum that we know as the divine expression of love and light. Integrating this conscious unity into the galactic paradigm. So welcome all, both terrestrial beings and galactic beings as one. So be it. 
You're listening to Revolution Radio. Thank you for listening to Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Any commercial advertising you may hear in this program is of the sole discretion and benefit of the host of whose program you are listening to. Revolution Radio does not endorse any commercial products, nor does it accept monetary compensation for on-air advertising of commercial products, nor will it ever. We are and shall remain 100% listener supported. Any product advertising on this program are considered used at higher risk, and Revolution Radio shall not be held liable for any claims or damages received from any product advertised within this program. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. All right, thanks for listening while we took that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. Okay, welcome back to Free Association. Uh, my name's Dennis. I'm here for another hour. And I've got a short clip that has Robert Malone on it. I might, I might try and find a longer piece with Robert Malone on it, but uh, for the time being, this is about six minutes, seven minutes maybe. What we're experiencing is a coordinated media warfare, the level of which we have never seen before, and I and my peers have never seen this level of coordinated propaganda. Now you're going to the next level of WTF. The BBC announced to the world uh, last fall that this organization that they had led the development of, which ties together big tech, and big media in service of the government and was built expressly for the purpose of protecting democracy and voting integrity from undue influence from hostile offshore players through media information campaigns, which you'll recall was the claim that was made against Russia. And so this was the response of the Western nations to build this new structure called the Trusted News Initiative that would survey all information about elections and prevent the intrusion of foreign information into the democratic process and creation of undue influence by foreign actors. Shortly after it was created, there was an awareness in the pharmaceutical industry that this could be used to address a particular devil challenge that they had, which was the pejorative label anti-vaxxers. That's also been deployed against climate skeptics. Okay, so anti-vaxxers is the, the label that is used to basically take anybody out that is raising any concerns about vaccine safety. It's the pejorative that's applied and it makes it really easy for the media to basically take off the table anybody that's saying something that is contrary to the interests of the vaccine industry. So there was a decision that this same toolkit, this same integrated international media and high-tech organization led by the BBC would be pivoted 
to resisting vaccine misinformation and disinformation. And they put out a proud press announcement last fall that this is what they're going to do. And they defined these things, misinformation and disinformation, as anything which was going to lead to vaccine hesitancy and which was contrary to the official statements of the World Health Organization or the respective national health organizations. So if CDC says the world is flat, then the world is flat. And there will be no discussion about whether or not the world is flat. I'm using, obviously, a simplified, um, silly example. So whatever the CDC or Tony Fauci or Tedros, etc., says is truth by definition. And any information or discussion which is contrary to that truth will be suppressed. It will be deleted. And those people that are expressing these opinions, which to some eyes would be informed consent, that information will not be allowed. And those people that are spreading that information will not be allowed to interact in the public sphere in social media. If you want to unpack this whole thing, it starts by understanding the Trusted News Initiative. Now, that's the starting point, but it doesn't explain the global coordination because TNI is mostly Western and it doesn't cover a lot of the other Latin America, for instance, or Spain or Israel. And the only way that I can understand how all of this messaging, censorship, deplatforming, what it really is, is canceling. And Bobby Kennedy makes the point that the first real example of cancel culture that we can track is Tony Fauci canceling the esteemed virologist Peter Duisberg because he was raising questions about the origin of HIV and its role in the disease called AIDS. Now we have a, a more recent example of this cancel culture as it's played by NIH and by Tony. In the emails that came out recently when you have Cliff Lane, Tony Fauci, and the director of the NIH, Francis Collins, basically coming out and saying that they're going to ridicule and destroy fringe epidemiologists. And what was their sin that warranted a concerted effort on the part of the federal government to destroy them? Their sin was raising questions about the effectiveness of vaccine lockdowns. And who were these fringe epidemiologists, as stated by Francis Collins, who, by the way, has no background in epidemiology or public health. Okay, he's a sequencing guy. But who are these three fringe epidemiologists? Well, they happen to be full professors from obscure universities, Oxford, Harvard, and Stanford. They were warning about lockdowns in the Great Barrington Declaration. That's what prompted that. So these three esteemed, high-profile academic epidemiologists came together and did an analysis, comprehensive analysis, about everything that was known about lockdowns and their impacts during infectious disease outbreaks. And they came out with a specific statement. You can find it on the web. Look up Great Barrington Declaration. And they came out with a specific statement that these lockdowns were going to cause more harm than help, which was contrary to the messaging that was being putting, put out by Tony.
We have governments asserting that it's okay to go in and vaccinate children without their parents' consent. In this two-part episode, I sit down again with Dr. Robert Malone, who pioneered the mRNA vaccine technology that's used in many of the COVID vaccines today. We discuss his career and look further into the intriguing psychological phenomenon known as mass formation. The mass is formed around the idea that the vaccines are magically going to be able to relieve them of this problem. We also dig into how vaccines are faring against Omicron, how the term herd immunity has been weaponized, and the dangers of mandating vaccines for children. With my background and experience, if I'm not allowed to speak about my concerns, whether they're right or wrong, who is? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Dr. Robert Malone, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you, Jan. It's always my pleasure. I look forward to this interview and and to many future ones. You just had a podcast with Joe Rogan, uh, which I understand is probably one of probably the most popular podcasts uh, in the world right now. Perhaps this is what some of the metrics I've been seeing suggest. Um, it's curious because the I think the thing that took it to that level is not necessarily your lane, right? It's this idea of mass formation. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Before we go there, you're also being attacked by all sorts of actors all over the place. So I want to give you the opportunity to tell me a little bit more about where you come from, what your work has been. Uh, I want to make sure that people are very clear on, uh, on who I'm interviewing here. So uh, I have some good news uh, that's along these lines. We've now opened the uh, two clinical trials sponsored by the Defense Threat Reduction Agency uh, with uh, Lidos acting as the sponsor. This is technical pharmaceutical language for the treatment of uh, COVID disease with high dose famotidine and celecoxib. So this is uh, technology. These are findings in terms of repurposed drugs that go back to the first phone call that I got from the CAA officer in Wuhan on January 4th. This is what my primary thrust has been in terms of research ever since, is identifying repurposed drugs and getting them into the clinic and developing highly innovative uh, clinical trials and trial designs around those. So these two trials that are just launched now, and I believe uh, it may be that we're having our first patients in today. We had a long teleconference yesterday about it with the team. These are incredibly innovative trials. They have a whole brand new patient-centered outcomes research tool for capturing data so that it, people, patients aren't responding to a predefined checklist of symptoms. It's, the software is designed so the patient drives the symptoms that are captured and characterized and then tracked through their course of their illness. So it doesn't have predefined biases about what people will experience with COVID disease. It has the Fluidus system, which is a cutting edge technology, basically a a MRI-based spirometry of the lung. So this is high resolution magnetic resonance imaging that is going to be tracking the effects of the disease and the drug interventions on blood flow in the lung, oxygenation in the lung, the arterial side, the venous side, 
The trials include um, administering influenza vaccine at the end of the treatment and at discharge from hospital so that we can track the effects on of the treatment and of the disease on immune responses. It includes a full suite of omics being done by Emory. These are, they're not just trials of these drugs. These are going to profoundly change our understanding of this disease and really are bringing to the fore a whole new innovative approach to clinical research that is patient-based rather than based on pre, pre-assumptions from a pharmaceutical sponsor. And it has the advantage that it is using repurposed agents, famotidine and celecoxib, that your audience will know of as Pepsid and Celebrex. One is over-the-counter and the other is uh, by prescription, but has been around for a long time and is well understood. So the point being, remember my primary focus, my primary core competency these days is not just discovery research and the stuff that I did back when I was running an academic lab. It's running these large teams and helping them structure large clinical trials and also the regulatory affairs component. So currently I serve as the president of the International Alliance of Physicians and and Medical Scientists. That's over 16,000 physicians and scientists from all over the world. You can find that on globalcovidsummit.org. I serve as the chief science officer and regulatory officer for the Unity Project. You can find that at unityprojectonline.com. That's an organization that's focused on uh, trying to uh, resist the mandates, particularly the mandates for children. It is focused on trying to keep the children from being subjected to mandatory vaccination. And maybe you're reacting to, we haven't spoken before, historically over the lifetime of my career, I've won well over $8 billion in federal grants and contracts. I've managed multiple large study sections for federal contracts for the NIH, NIAID typically, or DMID, having to do with biodefense and vaccines. I'm often the study section chairperson. This is not a trivial task, trust me. Um, uh, And uh, there aren't very many people that have my breadth of experience all the way through federal contracting. Um, I actually have quite a bit of experience in federal contracting uh, as a consequence of having won and managed this large amount of capital over decades now. Uh, so they typically have me in as a study section chair for the large study sections that are giving out contracts in the 80 to $150 million range for biodefense vaccines uh, related products. Um, uh, there's you know, many aspects to what I do. I guess it wasn't previously recognized by many that I have graduated from Harvard Medical School in a fellowship that involved global clinical research. I've been brought back to speak to students, including this last year's class, as one of their exemplars. I completed two fellowships after I completed my MD, uh, uh, both at UC Davis. I've done many things, uh, and and uh, these days, truly, I'm one of the few. This is not bragging. It's just, you know, I've worked hard to get to this place in my career where I have not only this 30 years of experience and deep experience in bench research, over 15 issued patents, 
10 of which at least are directly relevant to genetic vaccines, RNA, DNA, and viruses, nine of which were filed on March of um, uh, <laughs> 1988, I guess it was, 88 or 89, a full decade before uh, the Carrico and Weissman work. Carrico uh, cites me in her first mRNA paper, delivery paper, in the acknowledgments and in the references. I had actually um, spoken to her, coached her a little bit, and invited her to a key conference that I'd set up in Annapolis back in the day. This is mid-90s when she first started doing this so that she could speak to other experts in the field and learn from them. Uh, so I've been in this a long time, and yeah, there's all this yellow journalism, and uh, they attempt to demean me or uh, um, perform various forms of character assassination. These are often done by journal, junior journalists. Uh, often the pieces are poorly written. The Atlantic article is uh, uh, regular journalists, when I talk to them, uh, find it as kind of a case study of, of what not to write and uh, of an example of, of what comes out of a less well-trained journalistic uh, pen. And, and um, it's that I, I had expected to have this type of attack. I've seen it happen with others. I saw it happen when I was a young scientist with Peter Duesberg, where he got canceled. Bobby Kennedy, in his book, makes the case that Peter Duesberg's intentional canceling by Tony Fauci because of his comments about HIV disease and the origin of AIDS may be one of the first examples of cancel culture. Peter Duesberg is one of the great virologists of the 20th century. I mean, one of the lovely things about the Kennedy book is it so clearly demonstrates that what we're experiencing here with the media manipulation, propaganda, censorship, etc., was really piloted with the HIV outbreak. We're seeing kind of a third or fourth generation version of strategies that were developed then. So in terms of, I hope that that speaks to this question of, of you know, in, amplifying what my, and, and expanding an understanding of, of my CV. And the viewers, you know, I, I always say um, it's more important to me to help people to get access to the data and learn to think for themselves and make their own opinion. I don't want to tell people what to think. I want to help them think and give them the tools to do it. So your viewers can easily do a search on Google Scholar, just Google Scholar, and my name, R.W. Malone, M.D., on Google Scholar, and you'll pop the full spectrum of my publications, the patents, um, at least the domestic U.S. patents, my scholar ranking, all the citations I've had on the various documents, etc. And you make your own opinion about whether or not I invented these technologies and the role that I've played in my industry. Well, I mean, they're all available there for now, right? <laughs> I mean, you've, you've had some commentary about, you know, Google search and the concept of mass formation. And I know that, uh, you know, the sort of origin, the modern originator of this discussion has, has asked that the term psychosis be stricken for very good reason. So I'm, I'm just going to use mass formation here. 
But so you're, are you concerned that there may be that kind of censorship potentially in the future? So you're referencing that over the last weekend on New Year's Eve, the Rogan show came out in which I spoke about mass formation, a topic I've spoken out on multiple other podcasts. And there's been media out there and et cetera for quite a long time. And I'm just a student of Matthias Desmet. I've made this very clear. Dr. Matthias Desmet, University of Ghent um, in Belgium. I've learned from him everything I know about mass formation. So I spoke about it in a simple way that seems to have connected with people. And, and it became one of the top trending search terms uh, on Google over the weekend. And what was fascinating is people that are on my Getter account started tracking as Google by comparing DuckDuckGo search results and Google search results and, and screenshotting the differences. They were able to demonstrate Google actively manipulating the search results in real time over the weekend to downgrade the links that would pop when people would search mass formation because I was coming at the top of the stack initially on Google. And Google then stopped the ability of users to search mass formation and manually went in and changed the ranking results so that uh, obscure videos that had been uh, posted by people that were attacking, assuming that I was the originator of the theory and the logic, which was not true, they attacked me personally for what I had said, not realizing that it's actually Matthias Desmet that developed all of this theory, and I was just reciting what I've learned from him. And Google put uh, YouTube clips that had prior had only like 10 hits at the top of the search stack as the most uh, frequent responses when people would search and pushed me way down in the stack so you couldn't find it unless you searched on DuckDuckGo. So it was a fascinating example in, of of that actually validated in real time Matthias Desmet's theories. I was on a podcast with Matthias De yesterday, and we had a good laugh that over the last week, we have had enough data generated validating his theories of mass formation to keep him and his graduate students going for the next 20 years. I mean, it, it has been amazing watching it. And what it, what it demonstrates is the lack of self-awareness by big tech that that what they are caught up in the mass formation themselves or they are intentionally manipulating it. When we reached out to Google, a Google spokesperson disputed Dr. Malone's characterization of the search results and said they were, quote, automatically generated. As you said, you've been able to kind of explain this theory in a very simple way. So, I mean, very briefly, could you kind of explain what that is? So uh, thanks for asking. And I had the benefit in this interaction with Peter McCullough and myself on the Tommy Kerrigan podcast yesterday to uh, I was asked by Tommy to recite my understanding of mass formation and then get Matthias's feedback in coaching in real time, confirming the things that I got right, correcting me on the things that I got wrong. So hopefully I'll get it right this time. So. Mass formation is, does not actually originate with Matthias Desmet. It is a very active source of research in um, psychology that goes back decades. There's multiple books that have been written about it. The, the storyline for how this came about, this, this 
spark of awareness by Matthias Desmond, which he does get credit for, he is runs like this. He's an unusual academic because he not only has his Ph.D. and his academic appointment in psychology, but he also has a master's in statistics. And so he tells the story, the genesis of his insight is that he was looking at the projections from the Imperial College of London, which, by the way, are the basis for the CDC asserting the incidence of uh, Omicron in the current population of the United States, which appears to be overestimated. The Imperial College has all the way through this, they're a modeling shop, and they have overestimated the risks associated with this virus again and again and again, yet they're still doing it. In the early days, they made projections that were catastrophic about the number of deaths that were going to occur in different countries, etc., And Matthias started looking at these data as a statistician and comparing the actual incidence data and mortality in his country and then in different countries in Europe because those data were available. Um, Worldometer, your your audience can look on Worldometer or the Johns Hopkins site, etc., to find it for themselves. So he began doing this as a statistician and comparing them to the projections that were the basis for these very harsh measures that had been implemented, like the lockdowns. And just recall the Great Barrington Declaration team had said the lockdowns were counterproductive and shouldn't be done. We would have more deaths consequent to the lockdown strategy than we would have if we didn't. Okay, So Matthias was looking at these data, comparing the differential, and it became very clear to him that public policy was not aligning with the actual reality. And this caused him a lot of uh, cognitive dissonance of, you know, why is this? What's going on? Because at the time already there was a lot of the conspiracy theory circulating. And it was only after a couple of months that he had the insight, the brainstorm, that what he was seeing was mass formation in progress, something he had taught on. And the fact that it took him a couple of months to realize it demonstrated to him that he was also suffering from the mass formation, okay? because he hadn't, he hadn't been able to make the connection in his own mind. So what are the conditions for mass formation as, as laid out by Matthias? There is a sense of social isolation that pervades society. People are disconnected. Now, he cites the figure from various studies, and I recommend to your audience that they go back and search Matthias Desmet's videos on YouTube, and you'll find this stuff where he cites the reference source. He cites that there are solid data that something like 60% of the population of the United States believes that it has, they have no friend, which is profound. We are, we had become profoundly decoupled from each other as a society. And another key condition, so one of the conditions is this decoupling from each other and from the classic social institutions, churches, Rotarian groups, any of these things, sports events, teams. Um, We've become decoupled, isolated. This is before the virus. Had developed a sense of free-floating anxiety. This is one of the key features. A sense of 
anger, aggression, free-floating, undirected anger and aggression. Well, and, and just to be clear, free-floating for the benefit of everyone just means that you're not sure why. Right. Yeah, Matthias uses the example that in standard anxiety, we have a mental image of the thing that is causing the anxiety. That can be actually very adaptive. If we have a mental image of a tiger, we're anxious because the tiger might eat us. A mountain lion, if you're living out west. I mean, mountain lions eat people out west. It happens. Or a bear. Okay? If we have that mental image of what the threat is, then the anxiety isn't free-floating. It's directed against a specific thing, and it's adaptive. You don't want to put yourself in a position where the mountain lion or the bear is going to eat you. Clearly. Um, so it's this decoupling where you have anxiety, you're disassociated from your social structure, you're an, you're an island as an individual. You have this anxiety, and you have anger about having that anxiety. You have a sense that things aren't right, and yet you don't know why. These conditions all existed prior to the outbreak in droves. And Matthias cites multiple examples demonstrating it. The frequency of individuals that felt that their job had any meaning is historically in the cellar, etc., etc. We had a society that was profoundly ill in a fundamental way across the world, Western uh, industrialized societies. And then an event happens. And it is an event any event, it can be the rise of a populist leader that is espousing hatred towards an ethnic group, um, an enemy, an other. It can be an event like a major economic disruption, which is fundamentally what happened uh, after the armistice in, in Germany prior to World War II. Uh, the Russian Revolution is another major disruptive event. Uh, there have been many, many historically. Actually, the planes hitting the Twin Towers, a case could be made that triggered a mass formation in the United States. Historically, it may be that Socrates, in drinking the hemlock, was the victim of mass formation in his society. A case can be made, actually, the story of Jesus Christ captured in the Bible is a story of mass formation and the consequences of mass formation. So this has been with us forever. And what happens that, that apparently, I'm not an expert in this, but those that are, have noticed a trend of mass formation becoming more and more powerful, more and more universal, deeper and deeper during the 20th century as we have had the rise of coordinated global media and uh, dense populations, urban populations, etc. So they make the case that there's a historic trend to mass formation over time, particularly in the 20th century and now into the 21st century. What happens is there's an event, could be multi, multiple different types of, of sources of this event, and in the modern embodiment, you, you, he, Matthias says it straight out. Mass media, through its actions, drive the focus of the population, in our case globally, 
in the current situation. Drive the focus of the population to a single point through its obsessive messaging. So they, Matias is explicitly identifying the role of mass media in triggering mass formation in modern society. And he asserts that what happens as media does its thing to sell clicks or newspapers or whatever it is, you know, I use the term fear porn all the time. It's very good for the media to incite fear. Works for them as a business model. We've seen it again and again. So the media drives this focus and a fraction of the population, and it's typically about 30% is all, of the population becomes obsessively focused on a single point exactly akin to what would happen during the process of hypnosis. With hypnosis, you can focus the human mind on a single topic and exclude all other signals in the environment so that a surgeon can do a surgery on a patient who perhaps is allergic to an anesthetic agent that they might otherwise use. This is used clinically. This isn't just, you know, stuff that uh, carnival tricksters use. Hypnosis is a real thing, and it is used clinically. And it involves focusing the human mind on a single point to the extent that it will exclude all other data and signals. And that is what happens, what triggers mass formation. It typically happens when it gets triggered in about 30% of the population. And again and again and again, a leader will either incite that triggering or will gain control of it so that they are perceived as um, the solution for the anguish and pain, psychological pain, that the people had been experiencing. Okay, so a leader is identified by the mass once they've formed as offering the solution. Furthermore, by forming this mass from these people that had previously been totally disassociated in society, decoupled, had no friends, suddenly they have all found a common bond. So they have relief from their psychological anxiety and stress. This free-floating anxiety is relieved. They now have the metaphorical tiger or bear or mountain lion that their brains can focus on, whereas previously it, they, their brains had all this internal cognitive dissonance, but they didn't know what to focus on. Now suddenly they have a thing that they can focus on. And when that happens and you have a leader emerge that is accepted as the savior for that mass that is formed around this hypnotic event, that leader can do no harm. That mass, as we saw with Stalin, will first consume those that are perceived or identified by the leader as the other, the threat. And we see this in the modern context, in the current context, by the anti-vaxxers or the non-vaccinated. Those are identified as the threat outside of the mass. Whether or not the data support that, it is irrelevant. They are perceived as the other. And during mass formation historically, in human populations, people will eliminate that threat. The mass will act to eliminate the threat. And 
Deplatforming is a, actually a very benign version of that response. It typically results, you know, in the case of Stalin, you as one example, or Hitler, of course, is the notable example that we are all very attuned to. Um, with the concentration camps, Stalin, it was the gulags. What happens with mass formation in, in, in uh, the French Revolution, another great example, it's the guillotine, right? The, uh, the group that was identified as causing the pain for the French people were the aristocrats. And so the guillotine. Here's the thing. One, as the mass formation deepens, the, those that are part of that group will eliminate by any means those that are identified as their enemies, as the cause of uh, you know, the inciting event that they're focused on, responsible for that event, responsible for um, the spread of SARS-CoV-2 in the population. You know, all this messaging we're hearing from the White House that it's the unvaccinated that are the cause. Okay, what it, that is, is deepening the mass formation of this group that has become totally hypnotized. It's classic. It's so classic, you wonder, you know, is there anybody home? Are they, are they any self-awareness of what they're doing in terms of manipulating the population through this kind of crazy messaging? It is such classic mass formation behavior. But what will happen is that they will burn through, one way or another, um, that enemy, and then they will turn on themselves. It happens again and again and again. So you ended up in the case of Stalinist Russia, where Joseph Stalin killed, literally, over 50% of his Communist Party membership through the gulags, you know, as documented by Solzhenitsyn and others. Okay? So, and here's the amazing thing. Those that are in the mass, that have formed this mass, they will sacrifice anything. They will sacrifice their wealth. They will sacrifice their freedom because they are psychologically hypnotized and caught up in that mass. And they will do anything. And if the leader tells them that they're now, since they burned out all of their opponents, that they're actually the ones that are responsible for whatever the latest uh, transgression is, they will willingly go to be killed. They will willingly accept for instance, in the case of the mass formation in Russia, they will own that, in fact, they transgressed in some ideologic way with Communist Party dogma and will agree that, yes, they should be put in the gulags. The classic example of this is the Jacobins after the French Revolution. As you'll recall, the French Revolution burned through the aristocracy and then the guillotine started going at the people that were part of the revolution, right? That was the Jacobins saying, well, you're not sufficiently pure off to the guillotine for you, right? So this is classic mass formation or mass formation hypnosis. And uh, we are sh demonstrating all the signs and symptoms. And that's, that was what was fascinating over what happened, about what happened over the last week and the deplatforming of myself and many, many of my colleagues, if you speak against the dominant narrative, 
that is accepted by those that have formed this mass, about 30% of the population, you will be eliminated. You will be eliminated from society, from the dialogue. You may lose your life. So Peter McCullough and I are, are having this chat with Matthias and on a podcast, and, and I asked Matthias, okay, doctor, what's the prescription? What's the therapy here? He said that he and his colleagues have been talking about this a lot because now he's out in this, this inference, this hypothesis is widely circulating in his academic domain, and they're all debating it. He said that the emerging consensus is that we're already so deep in it, uh, it's here. Um, it's not the wolf is at the door, the wolf is in the house. We are suffering from mass formation on a global scale reinforced by global media. That's what all this coordinated propaganda, censorship, and everything has done. We're there. And he said the only thing yet to be determined is how deep the mass formation goes, how intimately people get wrapped up around this logic. Calling It's a stretch to call it logic. It is completely resistant to facts. Facts are irrelevant. If facts are inconsistent with the, the, the storyline that the mass has formed around, those facts will be rejected. This is another fundamental thing about human psychology, is it can be clearly demonstrated that there are data which come in through your senses. And what happens is your brain processes those data and compares them. This is, you know, fundamental signals coming through your eyes or your ears or touch. Those data aren't directly perceived. They are compared against a model cognitively in humans. And those data which are inconsistent with that model will be rejected. We are only able to perceive that which is consistent with our own intellectual model of reality. It can be demonstrated again and again. This is a core part of hypnosis. Um, so these people that are caught up in the mass formation, it doesn't matter how much data you throw at them. They will reject it. And we see this in real time. This is what deplatforming is all about. If you, the, the, this is the, the logic of mass formation is intrinsically integrated into the Trusted News Initiative. The Trusted News Initiative defines any interpretation of current events, risk profiles, um, adverse events of vaccines, etc., which is inconsistent with the party line being put out by the World Health Organization or national health authorities, is not allowed to be discussed. The only permitted discussion is has to be consistent with the storyline being put out by these global bureaucratic public health leaders. Nothing else is permitted. This is intrinsically anti-science. It doesn't matter because those people are the identified leaders of the mass that have formed. Any other information will be rejected, and if you spread any other information, it is determined that that will lead to vaccine hesitancy and anything, whether it's true or not, anything which leads to vaccine hesitancy because the mass is formed around the idea that the vaccines are magically going to be able to relieve them of this problem, which is infection by SARS-CoV-2 
and the threat that it represents. And so anything that is perceived as leading to individuals making a, a reasoned choice that they do not want to accept this vaccine personally is deemed to be mis- or disinformation by its very nature because it would alter their behavior and they wouldn't take vaccine. If you think this through, what that means is that the information that a given individual, you, your audience members, that they would require in order to have informed consent, true informed consent, it is not allowed. They cannot have access to that information that might lead them to make any decision other than the decision that the mass wishes them to make. Because the mass is formed around the concept in this situation that the vaccines are a, you know, a perfect solution to their problem, their cognitive angst, which is the, the existential threat of death from this virus. That's why they're so resistant to the data demonstrating that that is truly merely, a, that is an incorrect existential threat. The true threat that's, that's why it's profound that the government is not allowing the true data on risk to be distributed. The government, and, and it's reinforced by Pfizer, Scott Gottlieb, has. there's a great clip of Scott Gottlieb, in former FDA director, right? Um, uh, now a member of the Pfizer board of directors, speaking to the press on video, stating that there's been over 600 deaths in the pediatric cohort in the United States since the beginning of the outbreak from COVID, and therefore there's a major threat to children associated with COVID. He never mentions the fact that there was an, a deep academic study that documented that virtually every one of those deaths was in a child which had major pre-existing comorbidities. They didn't die of COVID. They died with COVID. Pfizer, with its representative board member, former FDA Commissioner Stott Gottlieb, neglects to mention any of that. Only the scare. Your child is at risk for dying from this. 600 other children in the United States over the last two years have so died. Therefore, your child must be jabbed. So we have the mass is formed around this idea that the vaccines are a perfect solution reinforced by government officials, we all know who, um, reinforced by this surrogate marketing, which, by the way, is illegal. I mean, I've been trained in medical affairs. You are not allowed to market a product that is not yet licensed. There is no licensed vaccine available in the United States. It's all emergency use authorization. It doesn't matter. Okay, so getting back to mass formation, what will happen is that Anybody who speaks anything, and by the way, they've defined, if you are against mandates, you are an anti-vaxxer. That's now in Webster's. The definition of the term anti-vaxxer includes anybody who is opposed to mandated administration of an experimental medical product, which is exactly contrary to the um, Nuremberg trial outcomes and the Helsinki Accord, which say that you absolutely can't do that. You cannot mandate that somebody 
accept an experimental medical product without full informed consent and in willing acceptance of the risk. Those criteria are abundantly not being met. We have governments asserting that it's okay to go in and vaccinate children without their parents' consent. We have policy positions that if your child goes to school, you are by definition consenting that your child will be vaccinated at that school. That the whole thing for me, when people ask, why are you speaking out, Robert? It is, it is profoundly shocking, antithetical to everything I've ever been taught in terms of bioethics. And one of the things as a clinical researcher is that you're subjected to bioethics training rigorously, repeatedly. It is one of the criteria. If you want to be a principal investigator at a clinical research trial, it was a core part of the Harvard program that I went to. Bioethics training. Bioethics, I've had it again and again and again. And we have completely disregarded. Aaron Cariardi was drummed out that the lead bioethicist for the University of California, Irvine, as I recall, was drummed out of the university because he wouldn't take the jab because it was being mandated, an illegal mandate in the, of the jab, of the vaccine, by the University of California. And they booted him out of the University of California, their lead bioethicist, who was taking a firm stand that was consistent with modern bioethics. Uh, that it goes on and on. But what, you know, those that are allowing themselves to be wrapped up in this uh, need to be aware that if this continues... They're at risk also. Now, here's the last little hook that Matthias shared that is um, so it, it just kind of locks in what I have to do, and I have to keep doing it, so does Peter and everybody else. What Matthias spoke to us of is that the mass formation has occurred. It is in progress. It is global. It's too late to stop it. The media is caught up in it. The governments are caught up in it. The WHO is caught up in it. Uh, big media, tech, and big pharma are all reinforcing it. Well, and many people maybe even aren't aware, as yeah, based that's on everything you're saying, that, 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 that they are caught up in something. Yeah, precisely. It's not, it doesn't, and it's not, we don't have to resort to Klaus Schwab or Bill Gates or whatever, you know, counter mass formation you want to make. Because that also happens, um, you know, for those that are in the out group, will develop their own counter mass formation. Uh, it is a fundamental human behavior. So what Matthias said to Peter and I is, you must continue to speak out in a nonviolent, calm way, because the only thing that will keep the mass formation from going deeper in society going even more crazy is the dissidents that speak. The dissidents that speak the truth. But he said, you have to be really careful because if you show any signs of violence or aggression, you will get stomped. It would, not his words. You will be attacked. So those of us, you know, I didn't ask for this. Um, I spoke out based on my morality and my training. I spoke of the truth that I was able to observe because of my knowledge of the technology and regulatory affairs and clinical research, etc. 
I felt compelled by my own ethics that I needed to speak about what I was observing. The comments been made as I've been deplatformed now by Twitter and LinkedIn is that if I'm not, if whether I'm right or wrong, with my background and experience, and I may be one of the very few that has this depth of understanding of the technology that doesn't have a direct financial conflict of interest, okay? If I'm not allowed to speak about my concerns, whether they're right or wrong, who is? Who is a valid person to participate in the dialogue? We could say that, you know, Joe Schmo down the street, who's a stockbroker or a plumber or whatever, shouldn't be allowed to have unorthodox opinions about vaccination. Or Alex Jones to take a stocking horse. Um, uh, but if not me, who? So that's the situation we're in is I started speaking out. Peter started speaking out about early treatments, the alternative to the vaccine. Both of us have been shut down, attacked, um, had had purposeful attacks trying to remove our medical license, our freedom to practice our art. Um, attacked, you know, vile attacks in the press, continuous. Um, and by Matthias's diagnosis, we have no choice but to carry on. The only thing that can be done to keep the mass formation from going even deeper, from society basically becoming even more decoupled from reality, is for those that are able to serve as dissidents, to speak truth in a nonviolent way to the population and hope that in doing so, it mitigates the risk of the mass formation going even deeper than it already has. Peter and I and, and Pierre Corey and all of the others in Ryan Cole that are walking this walk. And Mauro Rango, head of Apocrity in Italy, etc. It goes on and on and on all over the globe. Remember the 16,000 physicians and medical scientists that have joined us in this, that have uh, all signed off on the declaration that's on the globalcovidsummit.com site or .org site. We must continue to speak truth to what is essentially power, despite the fact that we eventually may be forced to drink the hemlock, not to be histrionic, but as the metaphor to the death of Socrates, we must Okay, I want to let this play out. Because we have an ethical obligation as the leaders to try to reduce the depth of the mass formation that has taken over the world. So many thoughts I have right now. Okay. One is, this is a... could could be a dangerous time. We've got about a minute left, so that's the end of today's show. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, My name's Dennis Barker. Uh, The podcast is on Spotify and Amazon Music. Uh, It's called Free Association Roundtable Radio Show and Podcast. Any combination of those words will find mine. There's quite a few called Free Association. So uh, I'm going to keep playing longer pieces on this show because it's. I think you need to do a bit, everybody needs to do a bit of work. And a longer piece of audio 
helps me to do the work, to do my personal uh, psychological work. Uh, and that's it. That's pretty much it. Uh, thanks for your time. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next. See you on Saturday at four o'clock Eastern time. This is Thomas, a.k.a. a mad painter. I'd like you to join me Monday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Open Canvas. Don't forget to bring an open mind. Yes, folks, that's right. Bring an open mind to an open canvas. Again, that is Monday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern. You oppose government corruption. This is Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here. We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyalty? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God given rights, and we shall not yield that right to any power on earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. This is... Jim Fetzer, inviting you to join me on The Raw Deal, Revolution 